There's no secret that there is brokenness in the world around us, right? We look at our culture, and no matter where you stand politically or socially, there are things about the world that all of us can point to and say, that is wrong. That thing right there, what we just saw, that needs to change, right? We, we, we all can agree that there are things in this world that we look at, and no matter where you stand along political lines or social lines, we can go, that's just wrong. That's just wrong. That's broken. There is failure. In the same way there is brokenness inside us, and if we were honest with ourselves, with each passing year of maturity and growth, there is a simultaneous growing recognition and awareness that there is more brokenness inside our lives than we can manage to fix on our own. And everyone over the age of 30 says amen. For instance, while I do not throw tantrums like I used to when I was a child, or at least I would like to believe I don't, um, I am keenly aware of the inner tantrums I find myself throwing, and it almost feels more condemning because unlike the realities of my adolescent paradigms, I know better, right? (laughs) And I still act and feel in waves that prove that there is still much of me that is not how I hope to be. And I don't know, maybe you're way better than me, but do you ever find yourself acting in ways that you know you should not and that are not the ways that you should? I, I think you do. I think we all do. So in the search for the solution to the brokenness in the world around us, we look to pictures of a bright future as a way to maybe motivate positive change in the world around us and, and specifically maybe the world within us. We look to the words of people like Martin Luther King who cast a vision of what things could be when he said, I have a dream, hoping that these words would spur us on to live in love and stand up against hate. Or we hold in front of us a picture of the me I want to be. <laughs> and other colloquial phrases that I try to block on Instagram. <laughs> and then we begin to explain and give reasons to the action of our newfound passions as a pursuit of self-love or self-care. With the hopes that the goals we have set for ourselves are enough to motivate us to go where we have never been. To be transformed into someone We are currently not. Now, I follow some of you on Instagram, Facebook, or whatever, and so I'm not saying that if you put Martin Luther King on your page or you have, you know, uh, self-proclamations of self-care and self-love, that these aren't good things, uh, that these are wrong. But listen, simply believing that, and this is the point, simply believing that within ourselves, we can accomplish the kind of heaven on earth we're looking for by simply placing our emotions and decisions on the counterfeit bedrock of positivity and altruism is like being prescribed a band-aid to bring healing to the reality of terminal illness. Does that make sense? And sometimes this kind of thinking creeps in to how we, who are Christians, actually apply the scripture to our lives. Maybe you're not guilty of this. Maybe, maybe you grew up in a good Christian home from a solid Bible teaching church that never 
messed up in any kind of doctrines or, you know, always stayed true to the center, never went left, never went right. Maybe you did that. But in my years of uh, being a growing disciple of Jesus Christ, over 30 years of growing and, and, and failing and, and, and learning what it means to be a follower of Jesus, I have, maybe you have, I've treated the scripture as a series of like disconnected stories that each gives insight to little morals for how we are to live. When in reality, the scriptures is so much more than that. To quote Tim Keller, he says this, the scriptures is actually primarily a single story about what went wrong with the human race and what will put it right. Figuring out what went wrong with the human race is actually really important. And that's why our text is really important today. Because if we're going to try to understand how Jesus is better, how Jesus is greater, we first need to peer into the ugliness of what is sometimes uncomfortable, of what went wrong with us. Uh, In the same message that I just quoted Tim Keller, uh, he gives this illustration. He talks about this uh, this woman by the name of Beatrice Webb, who was one of the architects of the modern British welfare system. She and her husband, he writes, he writes this, she and her husband and some others founded the London School of Economics. She was a socialist, an activist, a British leader. She kept a diary, and in 1925, she went back and looked at her older diary, and she wrote, listen to this. In my diary, 1890, I wrote, I have staked everything on the essential goodness of human nature. Now, 35 years later, I realize how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts in us and how little they seem to change, like greed for wealth and power and how mere social machinery will never change that. We must ask better things for human nature, but will we get a response? No amount of science or knowledge has been of any avail, and unless we curb the bad impulse, how will we get better social institutions? That's a remarkable statement from somebody who ought to know. She is saying there is something so wrong with us that leads to selfishness and violence, that leads to corruption in business, corruption in government, that leads to war and atrocities, and that's consistent across all of history. And she says, science hasn't dealt with it, education hasn't dealt with it, social machinery hasn't dealt with it. Who will explain it? I wish those were my words. But that's just something to think about. Who will explain the reason for the failures in our world, the failures in our own lives? Well, when we began this series, we looked at Jesus walking with two of his disciples. Some of you remember this a couple weeks ago. And Jesus came alongside of these guys, unbeknownst to them, and 
he came alongside them and he asked them what was going on. And then he did this really interesting thing. What did he do? He, he came beside them and he interpreted how the scripture explains the solution to all the failures their world and their hearts contained. And this is what, this is what we read, just to, to kind of bring us back there, Luke 24, 27. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in what? All the scripture. And what was the scripture at this time? Does anybody know? You could, you could talk to me, it's, it's fine. Old Testament. Thank you, Anne. There you go. Old Testament, right? We all know that. You know that? Right? Heads yes? Yes, no? Okay. All right. I don't know how Jeff, did he, did he, did he slap you for talking back to him? You can talk to me. That's fine. So, <laughs> so, um, so it's the Old Testament. And so the question of the day is, what do we learn from today's Genesis 3 passage of Scripture written by Moses? This is the question for today. What would Jesus say these verses if he was, if we had the opportunity to kind of peer into this conversation and when he got to this part of Genesis, which I'm sure he probably did. I can't prove it, but I'm sure he did. What would have Jesus said? I don't know what he said, but maybe, maybe he said this. When it came to being tested, Jesus chose better and he was greater. Jesus chose better. He was greater. Jesus would have said, maybe he, if he listened to a Tim Keller sermon, that Jesus is the true and better Adam. But if this, of course, is not a phrase a 20th century theologian came up with, this idea of true and better Adam, since the beginning of the early church, this is what Jesus taught his disciples and what his disciples taught others. How do I know this? Well, in a part of his letter to a church in a city called Corinth, Paul was trying to explain how a new life in Christ gives a person the hope of heaven when he wrote this. And listen to this. So it is written, and he's quoting Genesis 2-7, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The what? Last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Who is he talking about? Who? Jesus. See, you're smart. You get it. And then again, to a letter of a group of new followers of Christ, most who didn't have a Jewish background, uh, Paul explained this idea with a little bit more detail so they can get this idea. They didn't grow up hearing about Adam and Eve and all that. So he, he, he wrote them this letter to remind them, just in case they kind of forgot. He said in Romans 5, but there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many, but even what? Greater is God's wonderful grace and gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God. Even though, those are big words, do not miss this. Even though, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man caused death to rule over many. But even what? Even what? Great, thank you. Yeah, you got to help me out here. Even greater 
is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for some people. No, what? For everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. Okay, we read a lot of scripture. So, what makes Jesus, <coughs> there it is coming. <coughs> what makes Jesus the true, the better, and greater Adam? Well, as we said before, no one knows exactly what Jesus said to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, but I could imagine Jesus reading this account of Adam and Eve being tempted in the garden in Genesis 3 and stopping them stopping just to remind them of what recently happened in a garden as well, as all the gospel writers would eventually include in their accounts of the life and teaching of Jesus. Matthew recounts it this way. I think Jesus would have told a very similar story. Matthew said it like this. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he told the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, He began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. You know, it's funny. I didn't have this in my notes, but even just as I read this, when we think about how Jesus is greater and how he's better and and how he's better and greater at overcoming our failures, I think sometimes we forget the model of Jesus that in in our temptation, in our struggles, do you have a Peter, James, and John in your life? Sure, you might have some other disciples that you always bring with you to pray with you, but is there someone in your life that you can literally go, I am grieved to death? It's just something to think about. Remain here and stay with me. Going a little farther, he fell face down and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. It's a good prayer. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he asked Peter, so you couldn't stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. Listen, I know the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came again and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. After leaving them, he went away again and he prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Not my will, but your will. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? See, the time is near. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. See, my betrayer is near. Some of you are familiar with the story, and or not. But here's what you need to know. It was in the garden that 
Adam failed in his temptation to obey God by eating of the fruit with the hopes of gaining a life that God was holding back from him. Don't you know that you will be like God? Oh my goodness. And all of a sudden, the thought was entertained that by my own doing, I could be everything that I would hope to be. And simultaneously begin to doubt that God was giving me his best. I began to believe that God was holding out. His disobedience introduced death and condemnation to the entire world. But it was also in a garden where Jesus overcame temptation and made a decision to drink from a cup that meant him losing his life while Adam was trying to find his life. Christ was making a decision to lose his life for our sake so that all could receive the kind of grace that God has generously given to all who would receive him. This is the good news. This is why Jesus is better. This is why he's greater. So, okay, that's about Jesus. <laughs> I get jazzed about that because it's good news. Or maybe good news is what you've heard a lot of, but you're not really sure how this intersects and connects with the realities of your everyday life. And so we ask the question, what real impact does the fact that Jesus is the true and better and greater Adam have to do with the everyday realities of my life? Well, the writer of Hebrews puts it like this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the great, uh, uh, approach the the throne of grace with boldness, or with confidence, as I, I grew up with, so that we may receive, what? Mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. Okay. Let's make it real simple. <clears throat> how, does, how does this work for us? How how are we to connect the dots of Jesus being the greater Adam who was better than Adam who through his one disobedience brought death, but now Jesus brings life. Well, what does that even mean for us? I think it, it allows us to ask these two questions. Remember we asked this the first week and that we're going to be asking throughout the series in response to what we're hearing about who Jesus is. So the first question is simple as this. Who's your Jesus? Who is your Jesus? Is he an inspirational figure meant to motivate you towards a preferable future? I like his love. I like his acceptance. I like, I like how he was a friend of sinners. And, and so Jesus becomes this inspirational figure through which you aspire to become and therefore concentrating on that will just transform your life. Do you reduce Jesus to someone no better than a what would Jesus do bracelet from the 90s? 
Or is he someone who meets you where you're at, where you're at, where you're at with mercy and with grace because we need it? Because we understand that we are broken, that we are sinful, and that we are people in need of a Savior? Is he someone that you believe loves you, not just in spite of your sin, but because your sin separates you from God the Father, and he loves you just as you are, but has every intention to transform your life from the inside out? Who is your Jesus? Who is your Jesus? And where is your Jesus? Is he a distant deity that you constantly work to earn his acceptance and approval? Or is Jesus the one who is near and compassionate? And as Hebrew tells us, sympathizes with your weakness because he knows. Is your Jesus someone who, because of the guilt of your weakness and your failures, when you fail, when you stumble, is he someone you hold at arm's length because you feel ashamed or you feel condemned? And in turn, you're like Adam and Eve, unwilling to be found by him, even doing something as stupid as hiding in the trees that God himself had made, thinking that he will not find you. <laughs> Let's hide in the trees. God won't see us. And I'm not making light of our inclination to hide when we sin. But that's what some of us do. In our weakness, in our times of temptation, instead of clinging to Jesus, who is the true and better Adam, we, we, we put him at arm's length because of guilt, of condemnation. And we hide, feeling naked. Or, in light of what we just looked at today, is Jesus someone who, even when our guilt and shame drives us to do everything we could do to hide from his presence. Is your Jesus someone that you believe seeks you? No longer counting you as slaves to sin, but as a co-heir to the kingdom of God the Father who now calls us his children. Where is your Jesus? Is he out there? Or is Jesus actually Emmanuel? God with us. <coughs> in his uh, book, Discovering Christ in the Old Testament, author in... Bible commentator Edmund Clowney writes this. It's just really good. So I'm just going to read it to you. Before the story of redemption begins, 
the sole figure of Adam, God's image bearer, stands before us. He receives God's command and promise even before Eve has been given to him. All this has meaning, not only for the beginning of human history, but for its culmination. Adam, the representative man, prepares us for Christ. Christ is more than a substitute for Adam, a stand-in, as it were, to succeed where Adam failed. Christ, who is the omega, the goal of human history and of created humanity, is also the alpha, the true Adam, head of the new and true Humanity. He is the, quote, image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, as Colossians 1.15 tells us. For he is not only the prince of creation, he is also the creator. His image bearing infinitely exceeds that of Adam. You could say it's greater. For as the eternal son, he is one with the father at the last Adam's Created sonship can only reflect the greater sonship of the divine model. The Apostle Paul rejoices that the sonship we gain with Christ far exceeds that what we lost in Adam. So who is your Jesus today? Who is he? Is he just a model for you to attain? Or is he someone who actually meets you at your brokenness and doesn't ask you to become anything that he is not at already work in transforming you to become? In fact, he would tell you that's his job. Your job is just to obey. And he will continue the good work in you that he promised to complete when he returns. Where is your Jesus? Is he distant? Because of your disbelief, your unbelief. Is he distant because of your guilt, because of your shame? Is he distant because of your bitterness, because of your anger? Is he distant just because out of negligence? You didn't notice he was distant, but he is and Maybe today you could believe and confess once again that God is with you, that he's here, that he is true, that he is better than the failures in the world and the failures within our own hearts. Let me pray. God, thank you for the wonderful hope that you've given us through Jesus Christ. (laughs) You sang about it today. Jesus Christ, you are our living hope. May that be more than just a song we sing today, God, but may it be the anthem of the heart of every believer here today who walks from this place